Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, North Korea is threatening to pull out of their summit with the United States, but it doesn't look like we're taking them seriously. Special Counsel Robert Mueller is under fire as the one-year anniversary of his probe draws near. The Rebels' Tiffany Gabay joins me to discuss the unrest in Gaza and are China and Russia faking their GDP numbers? Satellite imagery seems to suggest they are. We'll analyze. North Korea's saber-rattling, claiming they want to cancel the summit with the United States now. But they really don't, and the State Department isn't taking them seriously. More on that in just a moment. They're claiming that they want to do this because the deal is now one-sided. We want them to give up nukes. We don't want to give them anything in return. That's nonsensical. You know that is. I'm going to tell you in a moment why I think they're doing this. The other uh, uh, reason that they're claiming that they might walk away from the summit in Singapore next month is because of the joint military exercises that we conduct with South Korea. These exercises are called Max Thunder, and they're put in place in the event of a North Korean invasion of South Korea. So let me read you what Kim, Kwa- Kim Kai-gwan, the uh, North Korea's first, first vice foreign minister, uh, it said the regime was disappointed by, uh, he said the regime was disappointed by provocative comments from the U.S., according to a statement published Wednesday by North Korea's state-run Korean Central News Agency. The statement cited comments by National Security Advisor John Bolton, this from a Newsmax story, urging a, quote, Libya model for the rapid dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear weapons program. So here is what uh, Kim Kai-gwan said. Quote, if the Trump administration comes to the summit with the sincere intent to improve DPRK, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, nothing democratic about it whatsoever, a U.S. for DPRK, U.S. relations, then it will deserve a good response. But if it forces us into a corner by pushing for the abandonment of our nukes only in a one-sided demand, then we won't have an interest in such talks anymore, and we will reconsider whether to respond to the upcoming summit. Now, that to me seems like internal propaganda. Why? Because we know those of us in the in the West, those of us, lisp, those of us in the West who uh, don't, uh, aren't fed their news by only one source, despite CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post wishing we would only be fed news by their little left-wing cabal, we have the ability to get news from many sources. And we know that the United States has said to North Korea, if you denuclearize, we'll open up trading and we'll help you with your economy. We're going to help you. Now, North Korea also said, this Kim Kai-gwan said that if... Uh, Trump follows in the footsteps of his predecessors. He will be a quote-unquote failed president and warn the U.S. to think twice about everything they're doing. Now, the State Department couldn't care less. They're still planning on the summit with North Korea. State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauert said, quote, we have not heard anything from that government, North Korea, or the government of South Korea to indicate we would not continue conducting these exercises or would not continue planning for our meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un next month. South Korea's Yonhap News Agency reported yesterday that Pyongyang had canceled high-level talks uh, with Seoul, with South Korea, over this Max Thunder joint military exercise. So another Korean news agency, well, the same one, that that Korean uh, news agency that Kim Kai-gwan was quoted in, said, quote, the U.S. will have to undertake careful deliberations about the fate of the planned North Korea-U.S. summit in light of this provocative military ruckus, a ruckus, just a bunch of hooligans out there 
causing a ruckus in the South China Sea. Who writes this stuff? What did they find a time traveler from 1955? A ruckus. Now, uh, the State Department doesn't seem to really care about this. Um, Nowert, the State Department spokeswoman, Heather Nowert, said, uh, quote, Kim Jong-un had previously said that he understands the need and the utility of the United States and of the Republic of Korea, South Korea, to continue these joint exercises. There are exercises that are legal, that are planned well, well in advance, which is very true. These exercises are planned years in advance. It's not like Trump and Kim Jong-un over the last couple of months decided to have this summit and then the U.S. just to be antagonistic planned this exercise. You're talking about moving ships and planes and troops. These exercises are planned years in advance. One uh, years down the road are already in, planned or in the planning stages. So it's silly of North Korea to expect a cancellation. She also reiterated, Heather Nauert, the U.S. State Department spokeswoman, uh, that the exercises there, well, they're not provocative. She said, quote, they're certainly not provocative. And uh, she went on to reiterate that. And she said, Kim Jong-un has said he understands the importance to the United States that we continue to conduct these joint exercises. They continue to go on. Now, Max Thunder, like I said, is an exercise that's been put in place for years, for decades, really. To, uh, in the event of a North Korean invasion into South Korea. But I predict, again, this is only posturing by North Korea to save face with their own people. North Korea needs money. See, the left loves to tell you how weak the United States is and how we should be terrified of China and terrified of Russia and everyone is better than us and everyone is stronger than us. And if the United States doesn't watch itself, you better watch yourself, United States or America's going to be invaded and, and we're going to be broke and poor and we need the world community, we need the global community. Only it's not really true. Not really true. Let me read you the gross domestic product, the GDPs of various nations, the nations that are involved in some way in the North Korean conflict. And I'm going to even put Iran and Russia in there because Iran was sharing uh, nuclear technology with North Korea. We know that. And Russia's an instigator. Okay, the North Korean GDP, the GDP of all of North Korea, you ready for this, is only $12.38 billion. Guys like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos are worth multiples, individually worth multiples of what North Korea as a nation is worth. All right, in contrast, in contrast, this is amazing. South Korea's GDP is $1.41 trillion. $1.41 trillion. South Korea's GDP is over uh, 100 times that of North Korea's. South Korea is in a much better position in terms of security and strength than North Korea. Japan's GDP, nearly $5 trillion, last estimate, $4.94 trillion. Now, China must be much bigger than Japan, right? Well, not really. Only about double. China's is $11.2 trillion. And Russia? Russia's is less than South Korea's. $1.28 trillion. Yup, this Russia that supposedly was rigging our elections and taking over the United States. Their GDP is only 1.28 trillion. It's less than one-tenth that of the United States. I'm going to get there in a moment. Iran's GDP. Oh, let's be terrified of Iran. Let's be terrified of Iran. Oh my God, they've got so much oil. They're so powerful. 
Their GDP is only $393 billion. $393 billion. Apple, one American company, is fast approaching a market capitalization that'll one day exceed the GDP of Iran. So you've got uh, North Korea at $12.38 billion. South Korea's GDP at $1.41 trillion. Japan at $4.94 trillion. China at $11.2 trillion. Russia at $1.28 trillion. And Iran at $393 billion. You know what the United States GDP is? $18.57 trillion. Yep. More than all of those combined. We are the strongest, most powerful, most prosperous nation on earth. And we're only getting stronger with oil and natural gas production, and North Korea knows that. But to see the left-wing media, the Democrats, they want you to believe the U.S. is very weak. They don't want you to do your homework and learn these numbers. They hate when a guy like me brings you these numbers. They don't want you to know about this. They don't want you to know that the U.S. GDP is about 15 times that of Russia. They don't want you to know that. They don't want you to know that the U.S. GDP is, is oh, geez, it's a, 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 a thousand times greater than North Korea's. Yeah. They don't want you to know that our GDP is almost double that of China's. Oh, we owe China so much money. China can put us out of business tomorrow. No, they can't. No, they can't. Do you know why? It's what Donald Trump said. Ships leave China full, come here full, and go back empty. It was a lopsided trade deal. But it also meant that China was very dependent on, a, on us to buy all the junk they make. And so if we stop buying or we put tariffs on it, we cripple them. That $11.2 trillion in their GDP on the screen here in front of me, oh, that could drop significantly. You see, the world needs a strong United States. The world needs a strong United States. And, and with a strong United States, we have a much stronger world. Now, the U.S. has uh, a GDP again of $18.57 trillion. Do you know what the GDP is of the entire European Union? Somewhere between 17 and 20 trillion dollars. Yep. The US is equal to, and, and, and in many estimates, greater than the GDP of the US is greater than that of the entire European Union. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got to be more like Europe. We got to be more like Russia. We got to be more like China. And Russia can take us over. Oh, my God. We should be more like these countries. We should be nice to North Korea. Oh, we should be so nice to North Korea. We should be so nice to uh, all the bad guys who hate us. Let's see what Israel's GDP is. Israel's GDP is small. It's $318.7 billion. Their population is tiny. Tiny. So they have a GDP about that of Iran about that of Iran. But Israel's population is only 8.5 million people. Iran's population, let's take a look, is 80.28 million people. So Iran has 10 times the population of Israel, but the same GDP. What does that say about each country? What does that say about the rule in each country? See, this is where the left wants you to be ignorant. This is where the left doesn't want you to understand math because math doesn't lie. These numbers on GDP 
They don't lie. They simply don't lie. But the left doesn't want you to know that because this debunks their entire narrative that radical Muslim nations are every bit as productive and valuable as, as Israel or the United States, that China could put us out of business, that we better deal with North Korea because they're a formidable foe. Bill Gates can buy and sell North Korea. One American can buy and sell North Korea. A stealth bomber costs about $2 billion. North Korea doesn't even have the money to buy and maintain one of them if they could ever get the technology. 12.38 billion doesn't go a long way when you're a nation state. Look at the numbers. There's an old saying, follow the money. And we talk about that a lot when we're looking at the Mueller investigation and negative things. But you should also follow the money when you're trying to determine which countries are wealthier, which countries are stronger, which countries are the ones that you should bet on for global stability. And when you follow the money, one thing becomes clear. The United States, Japan, South Korea, our partners in some very volatile, Israel, our partners in some very volatile regions are the ones you should bet on. They're the ones you should bank on because they're the ones that are ultimately going to win in the end with ingenuity, with innovation, with industry, research and development, production, business development, sales, revenue, and profits. And all of those things, all of those things make a country healthy and strong. It's not about socialism. It's not about globalism. The North Korea isn't going to leave the table. North Korea is salivating. They are salivating, sitting on their dirt poor, poverty ridden $12.4 billion GDP to run an entire nation while South Korea on their doorstep is doing 100 times better, literally 100 times plus better than they are. Of course they want a piece of that pie. Of course they want a piece of Japan's $5 trillion GDP pie. Of course they want a piece of the United States' nearly $19 trillion GDP pie. Of course they do. So don't listen to the left. Don't listen to the mainstream media. Do your own homework. Do your own research. Watch this show. I'm always going to bring you numbers and data and statistics. Fact-driven information. Gleaned not from some liberal think tank or subjective, uh, subjective organization. No. No. CIA fact book. The World Bank. The United Nations. These are all resources. Well, in many cases, who bury these numbers who bury these numbers, but the numbers are there to find and they're indisputable. Now, again, I'm going to be talking to you uh, later on the show about the fact that China and Russia may actually be fudging. They may be cooking their GDP books, but their GDP might actually be a little bit less. Stay tuned today because I've got a great show for you, a lot of interesting information, but the story on China and Russia potentially faking their GDP numbers is going to... Uh, really open your eyes and it's going to explain a lot about why the Trump administration is handling Iran and North Korea the way they are, despite China and Russia always having saber rattled on behalf of, of North Korea and Iran, respectively. Trump administration understands economics and they understand that they can push a lot harder than any other administration ever did against these bad guys. And that's why I believe North Korea 
will sit at that table in Singapore. They will shut their mouths. They will do as they are told. And quite frankly, if they want to do propaganda and lie to their own people, let them. The world is a much safer place under the Trump, Pompeo, Bolton foreign policy team than it ever was under Obama and even Bush. And I predict we're going to be much stronger in the years to come. The one-year mark of Robert Mueller's bogus witch hunt is on Friday. That's the anniversary of Mueller starting his soft coup to take down Donald Trump on, well, pun intended, trumped-up evidence of Russia collusion due in most part to this ridiculous Steele dossier. Now, we know that former CIA director John Brennan, the worst CIA director in the history of the CIA, an awful, terrible guy, was inserting parts of the Steele dossier into Barack Obama's daily presidential briefing, his intelligence brief, telling him the information was credible, not telling him it was opposition research gleaned on behalf of Hillary Clinton. That story is breaking. I predict John Brennan, history will show that John Brennan was an arch bad guy. Well, now Rudy Giuliani is saying that the Trump team is ready to pressure Robert Mueller at the probe's one-year mark. This from Politico. Uh, it says, frustrated by the open-ended nature of Mueller's Russia probe, which hits its one-year mark on, oh, it's Thursday, not Friday. I'm sorry, it's tomorrow. I lost track of days. Today's the 16th. Mueller was appointed on the 17th. So tomorrow is the one-year mark. Uh, Rudy Giuliani says Mueller should follow the example Comey set in 2016 when the then FBI director investigated and then publicly exonerated Hillary Clinton. Giuliani said, quote, when Comey closed the case in July, although I think it was a complete whitewash, I'd like to have them do that for us, meaning the president of the United States. Now, uh, never mind that Comey later reopened the case, Politico says. And uh, Politico, of course, is slanted. And they want to tell you that, you know, uh, they shouldn't uh, be closing this case because they insulted Comey. Uh, Giuliani called Comey, Comey a quote-unquote major phony. And this is my favorite, because Comey's like six foot eight. A little baby. Giuliani called Comey a little baby. <laughs> He's right. You know, as, as like pithy and kind of rudimentary as that is, it's, it's funny and pretty accurate. I mean, look, Mueller's had a year. Even Vice President Mike Pence told NBC last week, quote, in the interest of the country, I think it's time to wrap it up. Now, there been a lot of people in the MAGA movement, in the conservative right, who said, oh, Mike Pence is a deep state actor. Mike Pence is establishment. I don't know about that. I think by now you realize I've got some very uh, solid contacts in the administration and around the administration. Mike Pence has been a pretty solid ally of this president. I am a uh, Mike Pence fan. I like the vice president. I think he is a dignified man. I think he's an honorable man. I think he's a good man. Uh, I think the vice president has his problems. I don't like the way he handled General Flynn. But if you didn't see this little news snippet, Corey Lewandowski, someone who is fiercely loyal to Donald Trump, is leaving his very lucrative private lobbying and consulting practice and going to work for the vice president's PAC ahead of the midterms and ahead of the 2020 presidential election. Now, that all being said, I happen to respect, admire, and very much like General Flynn. I've gotten to know him. 
And it's really been a privilege. I've gotten to know his family, especially his son, Mike Jr. He's a friend. And people very close to them don't like Vice President Pence for the way he treated General Flynn. And so there are factions, but I've seen nothing from the vice president to suggest that he's anything but loyal to the president. And the vice president now bringing Corey Lewandowski on, somebody who's essentially Trump's one-man Praetorian guard in many respects on the outside. Well, that, I don't think Corey would go to work for somebody who was not loyal to the president, especially their PAC. And uh, I think the vice president's right. It's time for this probe to wrap up. If the, president were a deep, uh, the vice president were a deep state actor, he probably would say, let Robert Mueller do his job. Let it take its course. If it takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. Like guys like Jeff Flake and John McCain and Marco Rubio and all these other people that want to see Trump out of there would say. But I think Mike Pence realizes that if he stays where he is, he's got all the time in the world to run for president. He'll be in his mid-60s in 2024, and he'll have come off a very successful run and be perfectly positioned with the Trump base and the more establishment Republicans to win the presidency. And I think politically, Mike Pence is making the right move. But this underlies a bigger problem, underscores a bigger problem. Mueller's probe has yielded nothing. We now have one of the Russian companies he indicted. Well, apparently they don't exist. They don't exist. And a lawyer for an entity connected with the entity that doesn't exist is in court trying to say, this is ridiculous. This is a witch hunt. Now, a federal judge did allow Mueller's investigation to continue. They, uh, she said that uh, Mueller can, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not as investigator, his prosecution of Manafort. He said that his prosecution of Manafort is not outside of his scope, which we all predicted, which we all predicted. But I do believe Mueller played fast and loose with exculpatory evidence. And a year, a year is a long time. A year is a very long time. They found nothing. The people on the left in the mainstream media are saying, they've got 19 indictments. They've got smoking guns. Well, they really don't. They've got Paul Manafort and Rick Gates on old financial crimes, Papadopoulos and General Flynn on bogus process crimes. None of those indictments had anything to do with Trump colluding with Russia. Hattie, no big deal. Collusion is not a crime. It would have looked bad, but it's not a crime. And they indicted 13 Russian entities for trying to interfere in the election by essentially buying ads on Facebook. And if you read the indictment, Mueller's team admits that no one on the Trump campaign that was contacted by these Russian entities knew they were Russian entities. They thought they were U.S. entities. And in many instances, if you read the court transcript of the indictment, uh, it, the Trump campaign people basically were saying, hey, we're busy. If you want to go hold signs, go hold signs. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, sorry, can't help you. Um, no, we're not going to give you resources. Uh, or, yeah, come down if you want to volunteer. Oh, you're an American citizen from another part of Florida? Even if you're not an American citizen, you're illegal. You can still hold a sign for somebody who just can't vote. The FBI and Mueller's team concluded that everyone to a person of the Trump volunteers contacted by these Russian entities had no idea they were being contacted by Russians because the Russians were using identities, stolen identities of Americans. There was no collusion. So if, if, if Mueller was tasked with investigating Russian interference, I'd say go for it. Go for it. No reason to interview Donald Trump. That's a perjury trap. There was no collusion here. You can look at the messages. Many of the messages, if you dig into Facebook between those Russian entities and those Trump campaign volunteers that were put on those Facebook pages are still up. 
They never deleted them because no one ever knew they were Russian. It was like, you know, Betty and Jim Williams from Tampa, Florida. Hey, we want to come down and hold some signs outside Mar-a-Lago. We love Donald Trump. And the Trump campaign volunteers would say, the more the merrier, come on down. And that was the extent of the collusion. The Trump campaign people, the volunteers, the people that ran their social media, thought they were talking to Betty and Jim, a retired couple from Tampa. They didn't know they were talking to a bot generated in Russia. I mean, that's how dumb all of this is, how ineffective all of it is and was. But Mueller is still churning on with his bogus witch hunt. Now, while all this is happening, the Department of Justice finally responded to a request for information on James Comey's friend, that law professor who leaked Comey's confidential memos to the New York Times. Now, you remember this guy. Uh, This guy's name was, what was his name? Richmond. Um, I always forget this guy's name. But uh, he was a friend of James Comey. And this guy, Richmond, uh, Daniel Richmond, he leaked the memos to the New York Times on behalf of Comey. He was also given a special job at the FBI. FBI has thousands and thousands of employees, but apparently there was a job. FBI selects from the best of the best academically, athletically, strategically, tactically in terms of how they think. They've got a pick of candidates. Their list, uh, their list of applicants is far longer than the amount of people they ever hire. But apparently there was a job at the FBI that none of these highly talented people could do that only Jim Comey's friend, Danny Richmond could do. Give me a break. Now, Richmond works at Columbia University, worked as what was called a quote unquote SGE, a special government employee. He was unpaid, but he gave him status. He gave him access, he gave him a security clearance. And lawmakers like Trey Gowdy and Devin Nunez, well, they want to know more about that. Chuck Grassley and uh, Bob Goodlatte, they want to know more about that. Why this guy was given this special role at the FBI and then helped Comey leak information to the media. It's, uh, it's pretty bad. Well, sources familiar with Richmond's uh, uh, status at FBI told Fox News that he was assigned, this is from a Fox story, he was assigned to special projects by Comey as well as badge access and a security clearance, badge access to FBI headquarters, as well as a security clearance. And his status was the subject of an MOU, a memorandum of, a memorandum of understanding. Amazing. Amazing how shoddily the FBI was running. Now, Congress wants to know all about this. And I think this guy needs to be put under oath to answer some questions about what he did, why he did it, what was going on, how all this went down, this is dirty. This is really, really disturbing and dirty. Everybody is uncomfortable with this. Everybody. Nobody is comfortable with this. You've got Mueller on a witch hunt. His conflicts are vast. Yesterday, we talked about the Oleg Deripaska case. I mean, it's just conflict upon conflict upon conflict upon conflict. Impropriety upon impropriety upon impropriety upon impropriety. If this were a local prosecution, there is no way Mueller would be allowed to stay on the case. There's no way. There's no way. It makes it so easy for a defense attorney to rip and tear apart. But see, federal procedure is a little different. It forces the defendant to spend six figures to even get to that point. So they can leverage you. They can, they can threaten you. They can squeeze you into a plea and then thump their chest as if they have a win. But if you look at the history of federal prosecutions, guys like Hank Greenberg, the former chairman of AIG Insurance, who was a billionaire, who could afford the 20 million I think he spent to fight and they got the best lawyers 
and he put millions upon millions into fighting the government, Hank Greenberg was cleared. He destroyed, he destroyed the government's case. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not condemning the uh, federal criminal justice system en masse, okay? I've got friends who are federal agents, friends who are federal prosecutors. These are good people who do good work and take some very bad people off the street. But in this case, and, and they did it fairly and ethically, they didn't weaponize their resources. They respect due process, the guys I know, the women I know. This is different. Mueller and his team, Mueller and his team are perverting the power of federal law enforcement, of federal prosecutorial power. And they're using it to squeeze people to take out a sitting president. It is so disgusting that nobody is doing anything. And even these members of Congress, they're writing letters and being methodical and asking, no, time to blow the lid off this. The only one doing it is Devin Nunez. He's an American hero. He's an American hero. But we have no one in the Department of Justice to do it. And I just hope this new team of Trump and Giuliani is the final nail in this casket of corruption, in this soft coup to take out a sitting president. Tomorrow is Mueller's one-year anniversary as special counsel. And he really should be shut down and told to clear his office out by tomorrow. Close of business. We're talking a lot about North Korea, but there is still a lot of violence in Gaza. Israelis are defending their homeland. If, uh, if these illegal migrant hordes started coming into the United States weaponized, putting thousands at one point on our border while terror cells within them were trying to infiltrate other points on our border along Texas and Arizona, we'd respond with force as well, and we should. The IDF is doing what they're supposed to do, but there's a lot of backstory to what's happening in Gaza. And here to discuss it is one of the most knowledgeable people I know on this topic. You often don't see her because she's our managing editor here at The Rebel, behind the scenes, making sure we give you the best content. But Tiffany Gabay really is one of my go-to experts on all things Israel and the Middle East. Tiffany joins me now. So Tiffany, I want to talk about the recent clashes in Gaza, this strike that killed around 55, 60, which by the way, I thought was surgical precision by the IDF, not just necessary, not just justified, but vital to Israel's survival. Tell us a little bit about the backstory of what caused all this, because we're really seeing the end result. We're not talking much about the cause. Well, correct. Um, so a couple of things to kind of to point out. Israel is has one of the most advanced militaries in the world. If we wanted to turn, I say we because my family's Israeli, but if Israel wanted to turn Gaza into a parking lot, it absolutely could in a heartbeat. Exactly. That's what I said. We, we killed 55 Hamas terrorists. Israel has tremendous air and ground superiority. They could have wiped out 40,000 people in a matter of an hour. They exactly. killed 55 surgically, 55 Hamas terrorists. Exactly. And no one, no one in the international community gives Israel credit for the amount of restraint that it has shown and it is, you know, continuing to show daily. No other country in the world would allow its borders to be attacked like this. So I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. And actually, a Hamas official just admitted um, on radio, in fact, I'm going to tweet, tweet it out in a moment, um, that at least 50 of the 60 or so um, who were killed um just, you know, recently are Hamas operatives, as if that fact would matter. You know, anyone who's denounced Israel and condemns Israel really doesn't care about facts anyway. I mean, there's been more than enough proof for weeks 
Hamas has mobilized tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza to breach Israel's border with kite bombs with swastikas on them, uh, Molotov cocktails, actual bombs and explosive devices that they've planted at the fence and at the border fence, wire cutters, meat cleavers. They're burning tires so the smoke will blind uh, IDF officers. And they are instigating violence left and right. Now, they've been doing this for weeks. Now, one of the other things they're doing, I had the former consul general of Israel tell me, that they're also using this massive crowd, this 30, 40,000, as a diversion because they're sending smaller terrorist sappers, incursion cells, uh, to other points along the fence to get into Israel undetected, presumably to go to cities like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and carry out terror attacks. So Hamas has been using um, the embassy opening, or the Palestinians have been using the embassy opening as a pretext for these protests, but that's not true. It's because their terror tunnels aren't working, and they have been planning this for really quite some time. These throngs of people, these Palestinian uh, aggressors is really what they are, are a diversion. First of all, they've been marching for weeks, right, in anticipation of Israel's 70th anniversary. It's what the Palestinians call their Nakba or catastrophe. And I'll get into that in a moment. But this has been planned for quite some time. And um, and so really, they are trying to cause a diversion. And again, exactly what you said, they're having other um, factions try to infiltrate different but, but points. The, along the IDF the- intercepted those five small cells. They did a great job. Now, But let's even go back before that. I don't understand why the U.S. government forced Israel into a policy of appeasement to give Palestinians, really Hamas, Gaza. We never should have allowed that to happen. When I say we, I mean the United States should have told Israel, we back you unconditionally. Do not allow the Hamas terrorists to gain any ground in Gaza. We did, and now we're seeing the end result. Well, and this is the perfect example of of anyone who sits there and says that our moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and thereby really in the truest sense recognizing Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel, anyone who says that that is going to be a barrier to peace needs to look at what happened in Gaza. In 2005, Ariel Sharon unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. We uprooted Jewish communities. Um, We left in place lots of infrastructure for the Palestinians, including thousands of greenhouses that they could have used for actual, I mean, there was thousands of jobs to come out of those greenhouses from all of the produce that they were going to uh, help facilitate. In fact, about $14 million worth of those greenhouses were gifted by American Jewish donors. They were all left in place uh, for the Palestinians, when Israel unilaterally withdrew in 2005, and what ended up happening, Hamas, they, they, they sacked the greenhouses, they stole all the parts, they burned them down, they ransacked them, and they said, oh, look at us, we're so poor, look at our people, we're languishing, and they're causing themselves to languish. The catastrophe of, of the Palestinians has consistently been brought upon themselves. Right. And again, this is what they call um, the creation or the modern day establishment of Israel in 1948, where they call that the Nakba or the catastrophe. And that's what all of these riots are sort of predicated on. And what is so absolutely ridiculous and no one ever talks about is no sooner was the ink on Israel's lawful establishment dry that the major Arab armies waged an illegal war against Israel, including Palestine. You know, they didn't call them Palestinians back then. They were just called Arabs. Right. But they waged this war. And in anticipation of that war, there were about 600,000 Arabs who were living in, you know, these different territories that kind of comprise modern day Israel. Arab leaders told them to leave. 
They said, leave. And as soon as we destroy Israel, it's going to take a day or two, then you can come back. This is how the quote unquote refugee crisis actually came to be. But nobody ever mentions that actually the Jewish leaders, Israeli leaders, um, were urging those Arabs now called Palestinians to stay in their homes and to become citizens of Israel. They refused. They refused in 48, just like they've refused every time since. I mean, and this is the point. Let me ask you a question. Why is Jerusalem is not going to be what stands in the way of peace? Right. Well, that, that's what I want. You know, that, I had this argument with someone yesterday and then again this morning, the same person. And, and to and, interrupt, it'll help facilitate it faster because we're showing we're strong. Well, well right. This is going to be, I, I said yesterday that this will be the quickest path to peace, strength. But these people on the left are supremely naive. The, the argument they were making with me, they were comparing Israel's hard line uh, in Gaza now with the renewed alliance with the United States to Gina Haspel being confirmed in the Senate. Well, if she's for torture, it means that terrorists are going to torture our people. And I said, well, how many journalists tortured? This was a journalist on the left. I said, how many journalists tortured people? They said, well, it's a straw man argument. I said, no, it's not. They still, ISIS still cut off James Foley's head. These savages, these terrorist savages will brutally kill you no matter what you do. Why is there this, this dangerous naivete on the left that they believe that if we, for some reason, left the embassy in Tel Aviv, the Hamas terrorists would all of a sudden become nice guys? Well, it's absolutely silly. In fact, it's because Westerners don't understand the kind of primitive and tribal mentality that we're dealing in the Middle East. Um, they respond to one thing and one thing only, and that is strength. Any sign of weakness, any sign of capitulation, you know, or what a Westerner might think is just a concession, right? A reasonable concession that someone would make with a reasonable partner in exchange for peace. But what many Westerners don't understand is these are not reasonable partners. That's right. Anyone who is willing to sacrifice their own children and they do so willingly, they martyr them, they wean them on hate. Anyone who does that is not a reasonable partner in peace. What leverage do you have with people who sacrifice their own children? So there's a, a tribal mentality we're dealing right, with. Right. They're extremely primitive and they are at the end of the day weaned on hatred. And it isn't just Hamas and Gaza. You know, a lot of people were over there feigning outrage when Abbas a couple of weeks ago made that statement. And he was essentially saying that the Holocaust was precipitated because, you know, uh, people didn't like the fact that Jews were, you know, the bankers and, you know, all those typical anti-Semitic canards and right. everyone on the left, right, who doesn't support Israel, but seems very concerned about anti-Semitism if they think, you know, oh, well, it has something to do with Republicans or that it has something to do with conservatives. You know, they came out and they condemned um, Abbas for saying these things. Meanwhile, I mean, Abbas's 1982 dissertation was basically all Holocaust denialism, number yeah, one. I don't understand. That's my point. Like, I don't understand why they all of a sudden think that guys like uh, Ab uh, Abbas are going to become good guys. Like, Arafat was all of a sudden a really cool guy behind closed doors. But it's right. the left wing media, they love that. I remember being a little kid when, when Barbara Walters went to Cuba, came back and called Fidel Castro the sexiest man she'd ever met, a brutal dictator. I mean, it's, it's, they, love, they love enemies of democracy, they, of freedom. They really do. And and just to quickly, you know, backtrack about Abbas. And, and so basically, this is what Hamas does in Gaza. And this is what um, the Palestinian Authority are doing in, um, you know, in, in West Bank, is they basically model their school curriculum after Mein Kampf, right? They teach children sure. the cradle that it is their 
religious and national duty to become shaheeds or martyrs and to kill Jews who are descendants of apes and pigs, right? And and so all the time they're glorifying martyrs. Obviously, there's pay for slay. Abbas is paying all of these terrorists who um, who kill Israelis, and it's just well, he's, this- fo- he's following the same playbook that Saddam Hussein did. Uh, Saddam Hussein did that. Muammar Gaddafi did that. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini did that. Rouhani and Khomeini do that. The Saudis do. Uh, that the Yemenis do, but for some reason he puts on a suit, he's called legitimate, and all of a sudden we're supposed to forget that he's a savage terrorist. Well, right, exactly. That drives me insane. Outraged over the fact that he basically called Jews, you know, uh, financiers, and that was terrible. But the fact that he is actually facilitating the deaths and injuries of Israelis every day through his policies, and he's actually allowing, you know, national broadcasts on television and radio and school books to be modeled after Mein Kampf and and, and spew Nazi propaganda and anti-Jewish propaganda. That's okay. That's fine. That's that's fine, because, you know, he puts on a suit and he goes to the U.N. Right, and so Hamas on the other. And so these are not partners in peace. These are not legitimate partners in peace. So the fact that moving our embassy would somehow be the impediment all of a sudden is is just quite frankly moronic. It's moronic. It's moronic. Like where a building sits is all of a sudden going to make savage terrorists not savage. No, all right, we're running out of time. So business though, and that might be the one thing they respect. What's that? It's going to show them that we mean business, though, well, and that's right. the one thing they do respect. Right. It's going to show them that we don't care how much they whine and cry. In fact, we're going to back the IDF at killing more of them if they continue this nonsense. So that's a perfect dovetail into my last question. Do you think Netanyahu goes on the offensive or does he continue being defensive? Does he go on the offensive? Does, does he continue to go on the offensive against Hamas, against uh, Iranian targets inside Syria, because let's face it, Iran is the main agitator of Hamas. They've got Hezbollah waiting in the wings over there in Lebanon before they activate them. Or does he basically take a position uh, saying the United States is now a real ally again? If you guys stay in line, we'll stay in Israel. We're not going to launch rockets at you. The IDF snipers are going to chamber their weapons. Which way does he go now? Does he say, does he say you stop, we'll stop? Or does he go on the offensive? No, Israel's not going to go on the on the offensive. Um, but we're Israel's very prepared. Everything is going to be carried out with precision, you know, skill and thought. Um, they're already ten steps ahead of Iran and what Iran is planning to do. And and Israel's been humiliating Iran from the get go. It really is, is embarrassing what they've been doing to Iran recently. It's, this, right? It's more, I mean, mortifying what they've been doing to Iran. It really is. And there are such gluttons for punishment, which is really kind of icing on the cake uh, yeah. for these last few weeks. But no, I mean, Israel is very strong. And right now, um, the wind is at its back, right? I mean, the U.S. is now fully behind Israel in a way that, you know, we never have been before. We have opened up the embassy. The Iran deal has been nixed. Um, you know, Israel humiliated Iran with that amazing intel operation um, into its nuclear program. I mean, so we have so many things going on. And Israel has so much, you know, kind of, um, like, as I said, like the wind in its sails right now. So I think that's a great place for Israel to be in and for Bibi to be in. We're, you know, Israel's never going to be the aggressor. Um, right. Tiffany, you know what? You know what? That was my, that was my penultimate question. Here, here's my last question because I have to ask it because he is just the most insufferable human being in the world who I want to punch in the face. What is John's, John Kerry's endgame meeting with Iranians? I mean, is there a more subversive, treacherous, 
person, uh, the entire Obama administration, I don't know if you noticed John Brennan's statement yesterday is basically taking sides with Hamas. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, he he took he literally sided with terrorists, by the way, with money we've given them that we've given Iran that has funded them. I mean, that entire administration is a couldn't be more treacherous. And if people that people ever anyone should ever be tried for treason, it is Carrie and the whole lot of them. And it is absolutely I don't know if it's because of some kickbacks or backroom deals or his family. I I really don't know what is at play. But how much do you hate America and our allies to do that? It's disgusting. Mind blowing. It is mind blowing. And it, it should be he should be taken to task. Oh, no, I agree. Tiffany, as always, a pleasure, my friend. Thanks very much. Tiffany, goodbye. Managing editor of The Rebel. He occasionally writes articles. If you want to get smarter, I highly suggest you read them. Thanks, Tiff. Bye, Tiff. Sit down, because I'm going to tell you something that might trouble you, something you won't believe. Russia and China lie. Yeah. Russia and China are not truthful nations. And what aren't they truthful about? Well, here's a story I'm reading via SFGate, but from the Washington Post originally. Satellite data strongly suggests that China, Russia, and other authoritarian countries are fudging their GDP reports. We spoke about GDP a little earlier in the show with regards to uh, countries in the uh, Southeast Asia region, Southeast China Sea region, et cetera. Let me read you this uh, story. It's fascinating. China, Russia, and other authoritarian countries inflate their official GDP figures by anywhere from 15 to 30% in a given year, according to a new analysis of a quarter century of satellite data. Now, remember, we looked at Russia's GDP. It was 1.28 trillion. So if Russia is fudging that by 15 to 20 uh, to 30% yearly, they might be under a trillion dollars. China's is 11.2 trillion. If they're fudging that by 15 to 30%, well, they might be a lot closer to Japan than, than they are to the United States with far less population. They have 10 times, Japan has far less population. They have 10 times the population of Japan, about uh, five times the population of the US. So Russia and China aren't still looking so strong, are they? This article says the working paper by Luis R. Martinez of the University of Chicago also found that authoritarian regimes are especially likely to artificially boost their gross domestic product numbers in the years before elections. Round it out of the old Alinsky playbook. Make yourself look stronger than you are. Didn't Obama do that, though? By, by uh, forcing his labor department to fudge jobs numbers? Sounds familiar, right? And that the differences in GDP reporting between authoritarian and non-authoritarian countries can't be explained by so, uh, structural factors such, such as urbanization, composition of the economy or access to electricity. Now, uh, Professor Martinez's findings are derived from what they call a quote-unquote novel data source, satellite imagery that tracks changes in the level of nighttime lighting within and between between countries over time. George Orwell once said, uh, quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And this Martinez from the University of Chicago says that quote, quote unquote, summarizes the spirit of his project. 
He, he says, this is from Martinez, the researcher, quote, the key question that the paper tries to tackle is whether the checks and balances provided by democracy are able to constrain government's desire to manipulate information or, more specifically, their desire to exaggerate how well the economy is doing. The way I try to answer the question above is by comparing GDP, self-reported indicator, corona manipulation, and nighttime lights recorded by satellites from outer space and much harder to manipulate as measures of economic activity. And when you look at the maps, they're mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Now, research uh, also published back in 2012 by economists from Brown University and the National Bureau of Economic Research showed how changes in nighttime lighting closely tracked with economic activity. A quote, consumption of nearly all goods in the evening requires lights. And as income rises, so does light usage per person in both consumption activities and many investment activities, end quote. It goes on to conclude, as a result, increases in nighttime lighting generally track with increases in GDP. You can see the principle at work in the side-by-side NASA images of India at night in 2012 and 2016. Over that period, India's economic output increased from 1.9 trillion in 2012 to 2.3 trillion in 2016. Super interesting. And, and as they were self-reporting that for um, uh, uh, 0.4 trillion uh, increase, right? That's a $400 billion increase. As they were self-reporting that, their lighting at night grew. There is a correlation here. I dug into this paper a little bit. It's fascinating. It makes, really makes perfect sense, right? It's very tangible. If your economy grows, there need to be things going on at night to sustain your economy. People are buying televisions. They're using them after it gets dark. They're turning on the lights in their homes. They're out there in the streets. They're at bars and restaurants. More businesses are propping up. People go in the evening when it gets dark. The lights turn on. Gas stations are open because they need to drive to and from. There are more vehicles out there with their headlights on. People are buying more vehicles. They're going more places. These are very tangible results of, uh, results of economic growth. Incredibly tangible. And oftentimes, the most simple reason is the most powerful, logical, and provable reason. Now, uh, this, this is really fascinating, so I'm going to continue to read on. Martinez wanted to see whether the relationship between increases in lighting and increases in GDP was different for more authoritarian countries. He said, quote, Is it the case that the same amount of growth in nighttime lights is associated with systematically larger amounts of GDP growth in more authoritarian regimes? The answer he found was an unequivocal yes. Yes. Right. Martinez sorted the world's countries by their Freedom House, which classifies countries on a spectrum ranging from free to not free, and is based on categories like civil rights, protections, and civil liberties. He then looked at how changes in nighttime lighting correlated with the country's self-reported GDP measures. For the world's freest democracies, places like the United States, Canada, and Western Europe, a 10% increase in the average intensity of nighttime lighting in a given year correlated with, on average, a 2.4% increase in year-over-year GDP. Less free and open countries, however, reported larger GDP gains for the same percent change in nighttime lighting. And, it's most important, the least free countries of all showed huge increases in annual GDP relative to the freest countries, working out to between a half and a full percentage point of extra GDP for the same light increase. 
So they're grossly inflating their GDP while on par with the rest of the world to make themselves look stronger and more powerful like China and Russia often does. But maybe there's something about they go on to play devil's advocate. Maybe there's something about authoritarian regimes that uh, make the relationship between light and GDP different in those countries. So Martinez attempted to see whether any other factors were at play. He tested whether the overall composition of the economy could explain the differences he observed. And the answer was no. He did the same for urbanization and overall electricity usage and found that those factors couldn't explain the differences either. In other words, the only conclusion, the only conclusion after, after disproving all of the other potential reasons was that the most authoritarian countries are lying about their prosperity. But he did find that various political characteristics would explain the differences. Quote, the suspicious excess growth in GDP relative to growth in relative to growth in lights that is present in authoritarian regimes is smaller in the presence of independent political institutions. Let me read that again. The suspicious excesses, excess growth in GDP in these authoritarian countries relative to growth in lights that is present in authoritarian regimes, authoritarian regimes is smaller in the presence of independent political institutions e.g. an elected legislature. So if you're an authoritarian regime and you have an elected legislature, though, there is some dissent, then the fudging of the numbers was a little bit smaller. Or when they have economic institutions, uh, economic institutions like a central bank, or judicial institutions, courts that aren't corrupt. So when there's at least one or two institutions that avoid you being in North Korea, then the fudging of the numbers becomes a little bit less. The cooking of the books becomes a little bit less. Beyond that, though, he found that authoritarian regimes previously ruled by communist governments were particularly likely to fudge the numbers, to report high GDP. That quote, these findings indicate that the main result about democracy and autocracy is indeed driven by the differences in political institutions that characterize these regimes. In other words, when you have oversight, it's a lot harder to lie. When you don't, when you're a dictatorship, you can make up whatever you want. And especially when things are self-reported, nobody's going to question you. You can tell the world that you're the safest, most powerful, most prosperous country. Who's going to call you out? No legislature. There's no judiciary. There's no free press. You lock down the internet. People can't travel freely. There's a clampdown. There's a complete communications lockdown. I read a lot of studies for the show. I bring you a lot of information. This is one of the most fascinating I've read. This is super interesting stuff. And it really shows the, the need for freedom around the world. Something the globalists, the progressives don't understand. They uh, glorify Karl Marx, Teen Vogue last week, put out an entire article on how kids should be using the, the, the uh, philosophies and the writings and teachings of Karl Marx. They left out the parts, of course, about the torture and rape chambers and the purges that killed millions under Marx. Stalin's purges that killed millions. Lavrenti Beria's KGB, where women were, were raped and murdered brutally. People were tortured for no reason other than uh, being suspected of being an enemy of the state. All Democrats, globalists, progressives, I don't want to tell you about any of that. But I think uh, uh, data like this is absolutely fascinating. And I think as more data like this seeps out, as we learn more about 
how authoritarian regimes are are fudging their numbers, cooking their books. This is what I love about the Trump administration. They see through all this nonsense. They realize how powerful the United States is in relation to the rest of the world. Magnitudes more powerful. How disgraceful it was that Obama wanted us to be a doormat. Donald Trump is acting like it. John Bolton, our national security advisor, gets it. He's acting like it. Mike Pompeo, our secretary of the state, of state is acting like it. Mattis, our defense secretary, is acting like it. We are once again the most powerful nation in the world. And I just want to see that power rise. I want to see it soar. I want to see America once again become the world leader it was. And I think we're witnessing that history right now. 